What's up, everybody? Welcome to Wayfinder. It's Adam. I'm in the studio, and I've got a really special guest on the other end of the hook here. Jay Dyer is with us, and Jay is an author. He's a comedian, a TV presenter, and he's known for his deep analysis of Hollywood, geopolitics, and culture. His graduate work focused on psychological warfare and film, and he's the author of two books, Esoteric Hollywood 1 and 2, and he's the co-creator and the co-host of the television show Hollywood Decoded. He's been featured on numerous popular shows and podcasts and in debates with some of the world's top debaters. He's a master debater. Jay Dyer, what's cracking, man? Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I, when, you hear, when you hear that, you know, there's always the temptation to go Beavis and Butthead. Right? <laughs> that's uh, <master laughs> debater. <laughs> that's the, uh, yeah, that's, that's about the intellectual caliber of, of how we're rolling right now. Um, so man, I, uh, I'm so glad we got to do this. I reached out to you through a friend, um, because I was really fascinated with, uh, first of all, I love watching you own the atheists in debates. It always does my heart a lot of good. I love that. Um, but also, uh, I'm, we, we talk a lot about spirituality on this show. Um, and, and everybody in the audience knows that, that spirituality is a big part of my life. It's something that matters to me a lot. And that I think... I think that, uh, and we talk about this a lot, that, that spiritual confusion um, is probably a big part of the problem that we have as a society. Like people seem to be confused, right? So people have, they've been raised in a religion where they, they can't make sense of it, like intellectually or ethically, mm-hmm. um, or they've been raised in like an atheistic, materialistic kind of thing, and they can't make sense of that because they, they, they just have this sense of understanding that there's, there's more behind the scenes, right? There's something divine. There's something metaphysical. There's something existential out there that's creating and animating this beautiful uh, reality that we've got. And so being raised in, in, in my particular flavors of, of Protestant Christianity, I saw lots of things, uh, and I saw things from a distance, and I, I was, saw some things up, up close, like um, Catholicism was a thing I never really saw up close, uh, like from the inside, but I saw it you know, at arm's reach and a lot of my friends and went to mm-hmm. church with them, you know, a number of times. Uh, but a lot of Protestant stuff, Assembly of God, Southern Baptist, Methodist, all that stuff. I, I've, I've not been able to make sense of any of that stuff as an adult, right? It's, it's, it was always hard for me as a kid to make sense of it. And so I've, I've leaned in, in various different directions and sort of concocted my own spiritual system that I operate with, and it works for me. But I think when I, when I started to understand from my buddy, about um, your your religion or your your particular strain of Christianity is is uh, and I'm probably gonna mess this up, but it's Eastern Orthodoxy or Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And so, from what I understand, so you guys are like sort of the original form of Christianity that you could trace back to, like the time of Christ, and then y'all split off from the Catholics at like at like a thousand years ago or something like that. Is that roughly? Well, we would say, of course, the Catholic split from us, but typically, yeah, I mean, it's about after the first thousand years of Christianity, you have the, the church functioning in pretty much a um, empire-wide, at that time, the Byzantine Empire-wide uh, form of Christianity that's that's East and West, and then you have this split about 1054, 10, uh, 1274 within that time frame of where the Latin church, the Church of the West, 
um, really goes into a new stage of understanding of the papacy and they, they change the creed. They add certain little uh, tweaks to the, the previously accepted creed for, for several centuries of uh, what the church believes. So we would say that the Western church innovated, but yeah, I think that um, the, the first thousand years of Christianity is pretty clearly Orthodox Christianity. Okay. And so, like, whenever, whenever Christ, because I've I've studied Gnosticism and stuff like that, you know, I'm by no means an expert, never would pretend to be, but um, there were a lot of different sects of Christianity floating around at the time of Jesus, right? You had the you had the the Jews and the Romans and the pagans and all that stuff, but even then, just within Christianity, you had um, lots of different sects, and then that gave birth to later on, like uh, you know, you had the Pope and Catholicism and and all that kind of stuff. Could you, for me, just because I know I'm, I'm excited to hear about this kind of stuff, and I know the audience is, maybe paint a little bit of a picture just in summary of sort of what the landscape might have looked like religiously around the time of Christ leading up to, say, 380 Council of Nicaea time, that kind of yeah. time frame. Well, you're right that there were a lot of different groups that had the claim of Christian. Um, there were a lot of different books floating around that had the appellations of being written by apostles or disciples or uh, even messages of Christ himself. So those are usually called pseudepigrapha or uh, uh, what we might call apocryphal texts. And most of the time, um, they're not that relevant to what happens in, the, in, in up to Nicaea. Sometimes there's groups that follow those books. But one thing that's kind of surprising when I was a Protestant that I wasn't aware of is that we can actually go read a lot of these writers and church fathers from first, second, third century. So there's actually like all of these ones up here in red are essentially from those centuries. So we have a lot of, of information that we can go and look at that typically isn't doubted by scholars. They don't doubt that Tertullian wrote the works of, they might doubt certain sections of it, but um, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian, Ambrose, um, Ignatius, uh, Justin Martyr, Clement, um, we can go read all these guys who were well-known people and writers uh, for those first three centuries, and we get a very, a very clear picture of what Christianity was like. So it's actually not that disputed. A lot of people think that it is, but I mean, any, anybody can access these works. They're pretty public. And the type of Christianity that we have in the first three centuries is not significantly changed after Nicaea. This is a kind of a bugaboo, bogus argument that a lot of people make. Um, and it's just as simple as going and reading the people before Nicaea and the people after Nicaea. So uh, prior to Nicaea, after the death of the apostles, we have uh, bishops. We have an Episcopal succession of bishops. This is known as apostolic succession. We have a, an organized liturgical worship, which is worship based on the pattern of the old synagogue and temple worship. So it's not kind of like a free-for-all charismatic type of thing where you do whatever you want. It's an organized liturgical service based on the apostolic teaching and tradition. Uh, we have things like relics. We have things like imagery. We have the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the body blood, uh, uh, in terms of the, 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 the bread and the wine becoming the body and blood. Um, all of these doctrines are there in the first three centuries, very clearly, very explicitly. So... One thing that was a big shocker to me when I was a, a Baptist and Protestant was going and reading these people from that period and seeing that that was the normative view. Uh, there were some exceptions, fringe groups, yeah, but the normative belief of the people in those three centuries for the, quote, Catholic Church. And the reason we say Catholic is because Paul writes in his epistles that the church would be everywhere. 
and it would be one and it would have the same faith and it would miraculously be preserved with that one faith everywhere. Now, that doesn't mean that there might be a group here that falls off or but in terms of the, the whole body, the body as a whole throughout at that time, the Roman Empire. Um, it would never completely cease to be. It would never completely fall into error, and there's different reasons for that. Jesus saying that he would promise the Holy Spirit to the church to lead it and guide it. Pentecost in Acts 2, where Jesus sends the Holy Spirit upon the church, and then the church then goes out with that power to convert the nations. So uh, this is also important in, in the sense of fulfilling a lot of Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Zechariah, that when the Messiah comes, the Gentile nations would be converting to the God of Israel. This is one of the key signs that's supposed to be an indicator that you have entered into the period of the, of the Messianic age. The Messianic kingdom is here. How do we know when Gentile nations begin to convert to worship the God of Israel, the same God of Christ, right? And that's what we see within a, a few uh, decades of the death of the apostles. Christianity is spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And by the time of Nicaea, as you noted, it has penetrated all areas and strata of the empire. We don't see that as a, an apostasy or an or a, a alteration of Christianity. It's actually what was predicted uh, a long time ago. Even Daniel 2. Daniel 2 says that when the Messiah is born, the empire under which he is born will be converted eventually to the messiah's faith right and so we see that all those things as uh, prophetic fulfillments and not like a an apostasy which is what a lot of protestants and baptists tend to think so that's one thing that we can look at but then as you kind of hinted out at the beginning um there's the other side of this debate which is the roman catholic side of this debate which is well we all know that you know we need the pope and this kind of stuff and i mean uh, just to make it pretty simple, I don't think you find the the Vatican one uh, view of the papacy right going on for this first millennium. You have a recognition of certain bishops and certain patriarchates, yes, but you don't have this notion that there's one guy who's basically the kind of the CEO and God emperor who never makes you know doctrinal dogmatic errors. Uh, you know, and, and is gifted with this kind of infallibility. So that's where the Orthodox Church is different from both Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Um, and we just, again, we see it as kind of in, con in continuity with the first thousand years of Christianity. So when did, the, when did the Pope become a thing? When was the first Pope? Well, there have always been bishops of Rome. So you can read the earliest letters of Clement, right? So Clement's writing right after the death of the apostles, probably about 100, 110. Uh, and Clement was an early bishop of Rome, and he he talks about being a presbyter, having successors after him. So that's not really in contention. And even a lot of Protestant scholars like J.D. Kelly or Philip Schaff will give you like a um, a list of the successors of bishops in Rome. Um, but what happens is that because Rome has a primacy in terms of being the center of the empire for the first three right. centuries before Constantine builds Constantinople and moves the seat of the empire. Rome had that primacy because it was, number one, the chief persecutor of Christianity. You had all these martyrs, uh, you know, that the Roman emperors were were uh, persecuting. You had um, Peter and Paul basically establishing the church at Rome. And so for us, that's the reason why it's called doubly apostolic, that it was Peter and Paul who are the founders of the church of Rome. So if you look at Orthodox iconography, which is our icon art, artwork, I guess you could say, it's really, it's not artwork, but... It's actually religious uh, artwork for us. Um, 
you will see a lot of our theologies encoded into the icons. And sure. so every every icon of Peter and Paul has them equal holding the church uh, because they're the equal founders of, of Rome. They're not like, you know, P Paul's not having to submit and ask Peter for <laughs> permission to do everything he's doing. In fact, he even corrects uh, Peter in, in the book of Galatians and in the book of Acts. So, so we don't have this idea that one bishop has this like, infallible status above the other bishops. There are what we call canonical privileges that when the church has councils, certain important bishoprics are given privileges within the councils. And that's just called canonical privileges, an appellate structure, this kind of stuff, an appeals court kind of structure. Um, but that's not the same thing as this um, innovation that it, that kind of evolves over time where that, that bishopric starts to say, oh, we actually have like this special power that protects us from ever going wrong. And so all right. of the world should so, ask us. So when did, when, I guess I'm saying like, when did that happen? When did the well, So what happens is that you get, right, you get these kind of like privileges within councils or synods or honor that's paid. And this, in, this evolves over several centuries to be this special status. Gotcha. And so you don't start to see that specific kind of status until very late in the game, six, seven, eight hundred, where they start to make those claims. And it takes another few centuries for that to blossom into a full-blown split. So um, so it's, it's pretty nuanced, but one of the kind of mind-blowing factors in this is that there's about 25 or 30 famous forgeries that are now admitted by the Vatican to be forgeries. They've been known to, many of them have been known to be forgeries since the time of the Renaissance, uh, like the Isidorian decretals, the donation of Constantine, um, all these different documents that, that claim, oh, Rome was always given this privilege, this power, this authority, this temporal power even beyond right. the spiritual realm. Uh, and so all of that's pretty much been admitted to be forgeries. Um, and that's what was used for a long time to prop this stuff up. So mm. uh, it's really been in the last 50, 60, 100 years that a lot of this stuff has kind of fallen apart, you know, especially when it comes to the, the papacy itself, because you have in the 1960s, you have Vatican II, um, which was a thoroughgoing liberalization of the church. And they even went so far as to basically concede a whole bunch of the Orthodox arguments that Orthodox have been making for like a thousand years. So they basically concede all these arguments and they're like, but please still accept this as a, you know, infallible guide. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, we, um, you know, I, I, I try to be as supportive of, of pretty much anything as I can be, you know, when it comes to spirituality and, and people's different views and stuff. One thing I've sort of always been an outspoken, shameless critic of is Catholicism. Um, the, the, just the whole, the whole popery thing, um, the constant uh, scandals that those guys are wrapped up in with uh, with kids and the and the the hundreds of billions of dollars that have gone to settlements with uh, victims of child abuse of of the worst kind, um, that is an institution of evil in my view. That just it's just a it's just a bad bad thing. Um, well, I get a lot of flack because I, I go pretty hard on the papacy, but um, it's not out of hatred. I don't hate Catholics. In fact, I for you were you said you were an atheist for many of your twenties. Yeah. I, I got into Roman Catholicism for a lot of my 20s. So I was like super into Thomas Aquinas. I was really into going to the Latin Mass. I was I was a hardcore traditional Catholic. So I know the mindset inside and out of that Great. world. And I don't hate Roman Catholics. I want them to not be under a slavish kind of system. And yeah. I really 
it's a slavish system. Yeah, well, yeah, and let me be clear, and I think, I mean, my audience knows this, but just so you know, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not talking about Catholic people by right, any means. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Catholic people, great people, wonderful people. I've got some in my family, you know, and it's, they're people who love God and they love people and they want to be the best people they can, right. and that's great, but I'm with you. It's, it's a slavish system. It's not, this is a subjugated, um, this is like, uh, it's like putting, putting Christianity into a zoo, you know, and, and having zookeepers and, and this whole false uh, structure around them to keep people in, uh, you know, in, sort of in this control system. I'm not down. Well, like with, I told you, just one last point yeah. on that was, you know, the thing with orthodoxy that really ended up being kind of my, my resting place was that it was neither Roman Catholic nor Protestant. I mean, there, there was elements maybe where you could see, oh, that's kind of similar to Catholicism. You've got bishops, this kind of stuff. And then you've got elements that maybe are more similar to Protestantism with the, the criticisms of Roman Catholicism. But it's, it's, it's in many ways, many distinctive ways, completely different. So what I love about, um, I guess the one thing that I find interesting about the Catholics is like they have these beautiful cathedrals from back in the day. Right, these big, beautiful stained glass cathedrals. They're full of sacred geometry. There's all kinds of amazing stuff going on in there. So I'm told mm -hmm. that you guys have similar cathedrals, but without being infused with all like the fucked up dark energy that comes with <laughs> all the creepy stuff that goes on. But do you guys what what is your what is your practice of spirituality sort of look and feel like? What is what is it? Um, you know what you know what I mean? How do you practice your spirituality just in general? I mean, I you don't got to get super crazy with it, but just <laughs> In general, what does that look like? So definitely the heart of the whole um, thing is the experience in the liturgy. So we believe, contrary to Rome Catholics, that the goal of this life is the direct noetic perception of God. Uh, in Rome Catholicism, you don't have that view. You have this idea that that's kind of postponed to the afterlife. They call it the beatific vision. Orthodoxy doesn't believe in the beatific vision. We believe that even in this life, in the here and the now, man has a faculty for knowing and perceiving and interacting with God directly, which we call the noose, N-O-U-S. So yeah, that's, of, uh, I'm familiar with that word from uh, the Corpus Hermeticum. Is that there's similarities, but there's also some some key differences because in the the Hermetic Corpus, or even going back to Neoplatonism or Platonists. Um, or Aristotle, the doctrine of noose um, is sometimes identified with just intellect or mind. And although there is a component of the noose which involves the intellect, for us, it's not the mind or the intellect, it's actually the heart. So we actually believe that these two faculties in man, as a result of the fall, have kind of been divided uh, yes. uh, illicitly. And that's a result of what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden, and this affects all humans. So what has to happen in our own individual lives through repentance is that we sort of situate the news, the mind, or excuse me, the mind back into the heart and the mind is submitted back to the, to the uh, direct perception of God through the heart. And then things are functioning in harmony. So that's kind of the mechanics of what's supposed to happen in terms of what some people call orthodox psychotherapy. There's a really good book by, um, a famous Orthodox theologian, uh, Metropolitan Hierotheos in Greece, uh, and it's called Orthodox Psychotherapy, and he, t he talks about this very thing with the noose. That's nowhere in Western Christianity, neither, neither Roman Catholic nor Protestant, that have any doctrine of the noose. They don't have any doctrine of direct perception of God. Um, 
maybe some Protestants would give verbal credence to that, but not in the, the Orthodox conception by any means. But it is distinct from the Hellenic doctrines of what's, use. I want to be clear about that. Yeah, no, that's cool to know. What's what's beautiful about that to me is like um, the work of like Greg Braden and Joe Dispenza, which um, knowing what little bit I know about your views on New Age, of which I am not a part, <laughs> uh, but the uh, those guys talk a lot about head and heart coherence. Well, they're hitting on a point that we do agree with, and this is that book that uh, that I that I mentioned that that I recommend, Orthodox Anybody Psychotherapy. Yeah, by uh, Metropolitan Herotius. Um, For the listeners who aren't getting the video. Yeah, um, it does touch on some of the stuff that those guys are talking about, but again, we we make a. a one well, one thing we don't tend to do is get involved in dialectics, so we don't like to set one thing necessarily against another thing. Like, uh, if if I have a direct relationship with God, that's somehow against the idea of like a corporate smells and bells worship service. Like, we wouldn't set those things in tension. We would say that you can have that direct perception, but that God has also kind of given us means by which we get to that point. And so for us. The sights, the sounds, the, the mouth, the taste, the body, the, the the prostrations, the kissing of the icons, all of that stuff is part of the whole being of man being kind of submersed into that worship. I love that. I think that that's so key. I think that that's like a huge part of, I can say as a growing up Protestant, um, you know, there's not a whole lot anybody can tell me about Protestantism in terms of the experience of it, right? I mean, I've I've been to a, countless of these churches my whole life. And the experiential pieces of it are are really lacking in terms of mm -hmm. when you start talking about like the prostration and the sense and like I think of the sensors when they the do you guys do the sensors do you have and do y'all have priests is that what you use yeah we do have a, a priesthood and we see that as uh, not the idea of the Judaic priesthood but the priesthood that's mentioned in Hebrews that Christ talked about being a priest after the order of Melchizedek so the the Melchizedekian priesthood is Christ's priesthood. And it's actually older than the Aaronic priesthood of Moses. And that's one of the uh, arguments in the book of Hebrews is that the, the priesthood of Christ is superior because that was the priesthood that was always intended to be the eternal priesthood. And the, the priesthood of Moses and Aaron was typological. It just had a symbolic significance for a time period when until the Messiah came. That's incredible. So I've heard the word Melchizedek before in other contexts, but... Um... I'm kind of I don't I, so there was a priesthood of the old Judaic faith prior the Aaron, to right. Aaron and Moses yeah. prior to Aaron and Moses the Melchizedek is prior right and and oh my god dude I, I just wish I had you forever because I could just ask you all these questions <laughs> so these the, the the priesthood of Melchizedek when God when did they come into into being because prior to Moses and Aaron you sort of have you're going back to like the time pre-Akhenaten in Egypt. This yeah. is so. Was that was that sort of an Egyptian offshoot of the priesthood? Uh, there? It's around that time because uh, if you that read Genesis, so cool. if you read Genesis, there's a period where uh, so Abraham, well Abraham goes to Egypt right for a time period. There's a right. chapter in Genesis early on where he goes to Egypt and then he leaves Egypt. And then there's the story of the battle of the kings, um, which is like the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, and other places. And then after the Battle of the Kings, uh, there's this this mysterious character that's a priest called Melchizedek, who is the priest of Salem, which is Jerusalem, eventually down right. the road. At that time, it's not Jerusalem yet. 
this is ancient ancient times uh and so uh, abraham meets with this priest and he tithes to him and uh melchizedek comes out and blesses him and gives bread and wine and we see that as a type a foreshadowing of the eucharist jesus bringing the bread and the wine so this is you know for uh well abraham's what 400 plus years prior to uh the the exodus of egypt because it, abraham is told that his descendants will be slaves in egypt for 400 would be freed so the ironic priesthood is not instituted until you know after the exodus from egypt which you read in the book of exodus so one of the arguments that's made in the book of hebrews is that the priesthood of melchizedek is superior to the ironic priesthood because the, the people who are getting the letter the hebrews uh were people tempted to go back to judaism and the author is saying, most people think it was Paul, um, the author is saying, why would you go back to the Aaronic Judaic priesthood when the priesthood that you have is older and more superior because it's the one that is the is Christ's priesthood, in fact. So the irony here is that it's a, it would be a movement from the greater to the lesser, which is, is counterintuitive. So was so you, you had the Melchizedek um, priesthood, and then you had the Aaronic priesthood, the Judaic priesthood. Um, and then at the time of Christ, if, if I'm following this right, uh, right, he wanted to reinstitute the Melchizedekian sort of thing. Is that is that? Well, it, yeah. Well, the what we're saying is that so we don't believe Jesus was a creature. Like he's, I mean, he, his human nature was created, but uh, the person that's present there is an eternal preexistent person. He's the second person of Godhead. So from all eternity, Christ has existed and he, we believe he created the world. So there was always these indicators throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right? Uh, telling us of the coming Messiah. Um, so these promises that were made to Abraham, for example, in tw Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, those were all uh, promises about the coming Messiah. So even when he's meeting Melchizedek, this is a pre-signifier of the coming Messiah. I'm not saying Melchizedek is Jesus. I'm saying that it's a, it's, it's just called typology. Right. Um, and, but we don't think that that means like the Aaronic priesthood wasn't about Jesus. It was too. They both were. And in fact, you'll you'll appreciate this as a student of Hermeticism. Um, I'm sure you've seen kind of diagrams of the temple and you'll 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 see these uh, the way it's drawn like uh, let me see. It's drawn like this where you have this three-tiered structure where you have the uh, outer temple portico. I love it. And out there you have the altar where they would burn the uh, yeah, you're going to like this. Anytime you start talking about three-tiered temples, I'm all in. <laughs> yeah, you'll like this. So, and, and by the way, some of this appears in Egypt, Egyptology, too. Yeah, absolutely. Structure. So um, so what you get in, in, I don't know if you can see this very good. But, I got you. So you've got like the, the outer portico of Solomon's temple is where you would have the, the altar of burnt offering, and then you have this big basin of washing for ritual washing. Then you come into the, uh, the inner temple, the temple proper, uh, and only the only the priests and Jews can enter the temple proper, right? And then in here you have the table which has bread on it, the showbread table. I forgot to draw the showbread, but this is just a table of bread for the priests. And you have the menorah, right, which is the 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 lampstand. Now, this of course is the inner inner sanctum, the holy of holies, where you have the ark of the covenant with the seraphim on top. And this is supposed to be God's throne, God's chariot on earth, right? His chariot throne as represented on earth. So only once a year could the 
high priest enter into all the way through all three of these layers, so to speak, right, into the Holy of Holies to make atonement, right? This three-tiered structure, according to St. Paul, is symbolic of earth, space, and then heaven, heaven. Okay, so Hebrews makes this fascinating argument that when Christ ascended into heaven, he ascends from earth into the heavens, and that's why this has a lampstand, because the, the lights on the lampstand represent the, star, the, the planets and the stars. So this is a heavenly, this is earth, heavens, and this is the third heavens that Paul talks about, which is God's throne. All right, so, so, Christ, so Christ came, died, uh, in his human nature, he ascends into heaven as the high priest. He's the fulfillment of the office of the high priest of the Day of Atonement. Incredible. So, like, you just mentioned that, were you saying that the menorah is a, um, is a, uh, a symbol or a representation of like the solar system is that what you is that, that yeah, it's like the stars and the planets yeah is what, are there 12 candles or 13 uh well there's one in the, one in the middle and six on each side is that how that works the one in the temple might have been uh had more lights but like the typical one i think just has seven. Oh, is it just but seven i couldn't remember I think so but you'll notice like i mean it's not by accident for example that let me pull this picture up for you here that um, if you are familiar with the kind of garb and the look of Orthodox churches and priests and this kind of stuff, like it, it looks literally just like you would imagine the, or, or as far as we know of like the Old Testament worship looked. So we see it as kind of like a, a direct continuity with even like the priesthood there. Uh, my, I'm looking for a really good, comparison picture here that was on i think buddy my twitter if i can find it if i can't find it we'll just i'll pull it up later but well it's not going to be that useful to i guess your listening audience but <laughs> but you'll be able to see what i'm what i'm getting at here it'll be helpful and if you keep drawing me pictures like this i might end up having no choice but to post the damn video i'm a very so. visual thing i think <laughs> people, people think i'm being like condescending and it's just the way my mind works in terms of like i, I think in images so i think of no, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. We just, you know, and everybody in the audience knows, like, it was a really tough decision to make to uh, to, to stop doing the video. It's just production-wise, it was too tough. So it might be hard to see on this my buddy's picture here, but this is just a meme somebody shared. But um, the meme is basically illustrating that you've got so many uh, elements of the way that the worship service of the Old Testament looked yeah. that are almost completely uh, in continuity with, with Orthodox style. I and that was that was uh, were those those were like Old Testament era pictures you were just showing me. Yeah, well, they were representations of, of that. Yeah, so here's okay. like the high priest, for example, in the uh, like the the Old Testament period. Yeah, and then you know, I mean, the, the standard Orthodox drawing of the bishop or the saints. I mean, it's, they look the same. Was that other one? Was that guy wearing um, uh, for the listeners? So, so what we're seeing here are pictures of are. Uh, He's showing me. It's like the, of... the Levitical high priest. Like he's got the censer and he's got the the headband and he's got the vestments. Was that like yeah. Uman and Thuman, the stones or whatever on his chest or what are those? Th those had names or something. They're, well, that's they're represented the, the breastplate that, that has the twelve tribes of Israel on his breast. Okay, so he represents the twelve tribes of Israel. Um, there's not a complete one to one correspondence because some of this ritual garb that the Orthodox wear bears the stamp of kind of byzantine style as well yeah. 
So there are some of the elements of the Byzantine Empire. Will... Have you have you ever seen? Uh, and I don't know how much this translates over to to, to Eastern uh, Orthodox, but uh, we've talked about this on the podcast a number of times. But so, like, if you look at the the the, the priesthood garb of like Babylon, and then you look at the Pope, it is identical. They're still carrying on. I mean, they still got the the fish head hat. They still carry the staff with the pine cone. I mean, it's Babylonian. It's abs like it's absolutely Assyrian and Babylonian religious garb that the Pope is running around in. Let me see if I can find you a picture. It's, no, uh, so there was a book that was written by a guy named Alexander Hislop a long time ago, and and this is kind of the uh, the argumentation of Hislop is that because there's similarities in kind of the 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 garb that necessarily it's the same. Um, but you could find similarities between like the Old Testament high priest and Egyptian priests. So there well, are sure. similarities. Sure, but, yeah, because they were all they were cohabitating for God yeah, knows right, how long. But it would be a genetic fallacy to, to say that because there's similarities, they have the same origin. Yeah, that makes sense. I could I could see that. But beyond... uh, a lot of Hislop's arguments are not valid anyway. Yeah. I read the book. There's going to come up. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't know what the book is, but I've uh, I've I've Doug, dug kind of deep into the work of Michael Tessarian. I don't know if you've ever dug into Michael Tessarian. I know, I know, I know of him. I don't know him personally. Yeah, he's um, he's he's a guy who's done a lot of work on on occult ritualism and uh, the tarot and stuff like that. But he he's he did a breakdown of like the Queen's coronation ceremony back in like 1951 or whatever or mm -hmm. 1947, whenever that was, and it was all recorded on video except for a few parts that were not allowed to be filmed that were super sacred. I mean, this is clearly like a sacred ceremony, you know. But he broke it down and and um, uh, and showed how like this four-hour ceremony or whatever it was, like step by step, you can be traced back to um, not just the Babylonian and Assyrian coronation ceremonies, but also to absolutely to the tarot. Like the hmm. the tarot deck, it's is, is representative of all these different, and it's all astrology and astro theology that is then being embodied in these ceremonies and rituals, and then the idea is that these rituals and ceremonies and garb, and essentially the the mindset, the occult mindset behind these things, have been passed down and, and virtually unchanged for however many two, three, four, five thousand years, which I think is fascinating, and you would be a person. Um, well, I would take issue with some of those claims, not because I doubt the, uh, but I don't, I don't buy into the view that there's like a secret society that has passed down like one consistent body of doctrines. Like, for example, Freemasons will claim, oh, Aquinas was one of our guys. Dante was one of our guys. Jesus was really a free. I mean, I don't think any of that's true. That's just kind of like Jesus was a Freemason. Yeah, it's just kind of propaganda that they he couldn't be a Freemason. He was a mushroom. <laughs> well a lot of those uh like the people who come up with that kind of stuff they're, they're usually working with like military and uh disinformation operations people that make the i'm not saying every single person that believes that i'm saying like uh people that come out with these kinds of views i'm not knocking you or, or any person oh yeah no 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 for sure i, I don't... a lot of that whole like oh jesus was a um was zoroaster jesus was an egyptian pharaoh jesus was a magician a lot of that stuff is, well, for one, it's BS, and a lot of it is, uh, like, disinformation, CIA-type stuff. Yeah. Especially Tim Leary's type stuff. Like, he's directly from 
CIA. Yeah, did he did he talk about Jesus? I'm not familiar. I know who Tim Leary is, but I Well, he was a he was big into Crowley. Um oh, so wow. he had the view like Even Crowley, I don't touch Crowley. That Jesus was a, you know, magus or whatever. Yeah, I could see that, but I I don't I don't think anybody I've always wondered even even as a sort of an occultist myself, I've always wondered like how people could be okay with Aleister Crowley, like just being associated. I wouldn't want to, I I won't his books won't be in my house. You know, I wouldn't want anything associated with him anywhere near any, my stuff. Well, what I would bring it back to is just the fact that if you look at the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think there's a lot of continuity there, um, which is difficult to squeeze into like a kind of a manufactured uh, Jesus wasn't a cultist type of thing. Um, that argument's an old argument. It goes back to the period when the church fathers were arguing with that kind of argumentation. I just don't think the evidence supports it, especially not in terms of the intertextual evidence of the Bible itself. There's no, there's no evidence to support that. Well, let me because, ask you, you said something a minute ago that I, I wanted to drill in um, a sure. little bit more, was uh, the, the, the Orthodox um, conception, of, like the concept of Jesus. It, the, what, what you were saying was beautiful to me, and it, it just it struck me as being something that um, I wanted to understand more about, and I think other people would. So you said... Like he is, he was, he's like a, like an, how do, however you said it, he was like an eternal deity or whatever, right? And and that these like Melchizedekian priests or whatever were like representatives of his, but it, it's sort of painting a picture that he was this eternal spirit that resides mm-hmm. here, that we have access to or something. Could you expand on that some? Does right, that, so the, the fundamental doctrine of orthodoxy is the Trinity. Um, we don't believe that the Roman Catholic Church has adequately preserved the doctrine of the Trinity. We think that really when they went astray was not even so much the papacy, that was more of a outworking of their prior mistake on the Trinity. So Orthodoxy's most important foundational doctrine is the Trinity. Um, and this is really hammered out. Um, and it, we, we think that kind of the material is in the Bible, but it's explicated by uh, famous theologians who are known as the Cappadocians. So this would be church fathers after Nicaea, uh, in the 300s, uh, Basil, Gregory, uh, Nazianzus, and Gregory of Nyssa. And those three guys really lay out this pretty in-depth philosophy of how we understand and explain the Trinity from Scripture. They also give a lot of uh, philosophical basis and argumentation. Sometimes they'll utilize Neoplatonic, Middle Platonic terminology. Sometimes they'll use Aristotelian uh, ideas that relate to uh, energy, act, etc., these important Greek words. But some people get tripped up because sometimes they'll use terms, uh, logos, logi, energeia, hypostasis, etc. But they don't mean the same thing. So just because Plotinus uses the word hypostasis or logos, it's not synonymous in the exact same way that John or the Cappadocians use the term. So when we speak of Jesus as the logos, as John 1 does, we can't like import into that our sort of Hellenic or Hermetic sort of assumptions. We have to understand it within the context from which it comes, I would say. And Orthodoxy believes that the that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, being the first being the Father. And so the Father eternally generates a Son, which is his perfect image, fully divine just like him, but it is a, a separate, excuse me, not separate, a distinct uh, person. Because it's so embodied, they, right? Well, it's it's like uh, the it's a one and many type of relationship where there's perfect unity, but there's also uh, real distinctions. So basically, 
father and son are truly distinct, but they share the exact same divine nature. They indwell one another, etc. So there's a perfect unity as well as a um, real distinction between the hypostases or persons. And we think that that's true from all eternity and not just father and son, but also on the basis of what's revealed, there is a third person, which is the Holy Spirit. So father, son, and spirit have had that uh, eternal Trinitarian relation amongst one another outside of time and space, and it wasn't dependent on creation. Um, creation was uh, out of God's goodness. He willed to create, um, not because he needed to, he didn't have to. It's not based on any kind of eternal reflection in his essence or anything like that, which would be Platonism. He simply willed to out of his own goodwill and pleasure. Uh, and then he uh, willed to also endue man with free will, etc. So, so when we speak of Jesus as the Logos, as the second person of the Trinity, that's what we mean as the second person of the Godhead from all eternity, uh, uh, who then decided to um, become incarnate, to take on flesh uh, from the Virgin Mary, to live his life, fulfill the law of Moses, teach us uh, you know, how we should live, and then to die, to destroy the power of death, to make us into uh, immortal uh, deified sons of God. So we believe in uh, theosis, which is another unique doctrine to Orthodox Christianity, not apotheosis, not like Crowley thinking that man could uh, storm the gates of heaven and overthrow, uh, dethrone God. But well, theosis, I mean, I played God of War, and that's exactly what you do on the PlayStation version of I've God played, of War. Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? So I figure if it works there. Well, I'm just distinguishing theosis from apotheosis. So we would say that the participation in the liturgy, the participation in the uh, body and blood of Christ is intended to deify us with the divine energy. So we partake of that uncreated energy so that we partake of immortality. And then just like Christ ascended, we partake of that ascension with him as well. That's beautiful. I love, I love that imagery. So, um, so the theosis, mm -hmm. help me out with that more. So basically because we're fallen, Right, we become mortal. We become uh, subject to decay and corruption, death. Uh, the purpose of Christ's coming was to destroy the power of death, decay, and corruption, and to make us immortal, to make us sons of God. Okay, and so how would theosis fit into that? Like, um, if I well, that's just use... the process of doing that, like becoming sons of God, partaking of divine life and divine power. Partaking of divine life, divine power—that is theosis which is the restoration transfiguration of our whole being body and soul. Okay. Okay. So hence the resurrection and so forth. And so that's the process of salvation. Is that, that's how it works. Cause I know in, in right. Protestantism, For orthodoxy, yeah, theosis just encompasses the totality of that process from baptism to living your life to death and then the resurrection. Okay. Okay. So it might be something similar to, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of like the Dharma. I don't know if that, that uh, loosely, loosely, because it's like, like I try to explain to people that the Dharma is sort of like your, it's it's your own, it's like your own destiny, your own set of rules, uh, and your own sort of system of salvation, all rolled into one. Because some people would say like, well, is your Dharma the same as your destiny? It's like no, it's it's that it's rolled. That's one component of it. So it sounds like theosis is like your salvation, your baptism. Be a component of that, right? But more specifically, what you're talking about would be uh, the doctrine of the Logi, L-O-G-O-I. Okay. And that's a doctrine of St. Maximus, which is that each individual has his own telos Ooh. or purpose or meaning or, or archetype or destiny that he is called to. Telos, huh? 
That's a new word for me. I'm really, I love that word. That's just the Greek for purpose. Oh. So Aristotle, you know, he's famous for, for teleology. Oh, that's where the word teleology comes from. I've heard that word before. So in the Holy Trinity, what I think is interesting is all around the world you have this idea of a, of a Holy Trinity. You have it like with the Norse, and you have it in uh, the Hindus, and you have it in all this stuff. But it's usually a father, and then a son, and then um, a, 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 fee, a feminine... A mother. A mother, a counterpart for, for that. And um, I think it's interesting that, that in, in all, the, all the Christian sort of faiths, we don't have that mother. We're lacking the mother. We've got a, a Holy Spirit in that place. Um, what role does is is the Holy Spirit like the binding agent of the Trinity or no? That's the Western view that the Spirit is like this binding glue between the Father and the yeah. Son. Um, no, we we don't think that there is. We we think that the the divine nature is the so so called binding agent, which the Greek word usia or essence in the Latin is uh, essentia is what's usually used to describe the unity that they share. We also think they indwell one another, which is called perichoresis, but um. No, the Holy Spirit is a distinct person, but it's it's not a it's not a she. There's not really a an accurate gender uh, descriptor of the Spirit. Rather, um, we kind of would, we would say we reserve that role to Mary. Uh, so for us, Mary is Theotokos at the Council of Ephesus in the writings of Saint Cyril, because the person that she gave birth to is a divine person. Right? Jesus is a divine person. He's not a human person, and this is in contrast to the teaching of Nestorius, so the Orthodox Church re rejects Nestorianism, which says that there's a kind of dual personage. There's an eternal Logos, divine person, and there's this human person, Jesus of Nazareth, that was kind of united to the divine person at different times. Uh, we reject all that. We say that there's only one person present for all of Christ's incarnate actions, and that's the second person that God had, the Logos. And so in arguing that theology, uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria famously uh, called Mary the Theotokos, Mother of God. And that's from Luke 1, where uh, Elizabeth says, Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Lord's a divine title. So we think it's biblical and it's theologically correct to call Mary the Mother of God. It doesn't mean that she caused his divinity. She only contributed to Christ his human nature. But uh, the, because she is the gate of God, so to speak, into this world, we do think it's appropriate to call her Mother of God, and hence the Orthodox Church always refers to her as Theotokos. Okay, that's fascinating. So, uh, do I understand correctly? You, are you but guys... she's still a creature. She's still a creature, by the way. Sure, yeah. But you guys... Um... So, I, I look at a lot of spiritual systems through the lens of, like, balancing masculine and feminine energies, and... and... I know this is going to sound really woo-woo and new age to you, and I don't want it to. But, you know, just having an honor for the masculine characteristics that make up the universe right. and an honor for the feminine characteristics that make up the universe, right? Like, we've got to have discipline. That's a masculine characteristic. But we need to have nurturing, and that's on the other side of that coin. You right. Know? And we need to have, you know, open-mindedness. That's a feminine quality. But we need to have discernment, right? You know, we need to have those things. Um, and so I always look for that kind of balance within mm -hmm. uh, a belief system. You know, and I think it's important to have that. Uh, so do I understand correctly? Like you guys do sort of venerate Mary in, as that sort of feminine um, that uh, I know she's not a God. She's not part of the Trinity, but you, you guys do kind of give her a special 
veneration yeah, in some way. Yeah, she's called the highest of God's creatures. Oh, okay. Okay, that's so cool. She is the highest of God's creatures. Is that true in Catholicism, too, or just you guys? We don't have the same view of Mary. Uh, actually, Roman Catholicism goes to a whole other level where they call her, uh, at times, co-redemptrix. Um, they believe in the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Orthodoxy doesn't believe any of that stuff. Whoa, hold um, up, do- hold I- up. You just said that y'all don't believe in the Immaculate Conception, which is... Yeah. She of was Mary. not a virgin? No, no, no. That's two different things. So oh, okay. Mary's conception, right? So it, this is really nuanced, but we, there, we have a different view of original sin from the West because we don't have the same reverence for Augustine. That the okay, West tell me about that because I wanted to ask you. So your your idea of original sin. Well, the, so the Roman Catholic doctrine is that if she was, if she's going to give Jesus his human nature, then she has to be cleansed of original sin. That's the Roman Catholic logic. And so they believe that Mary was at the point of her conception uh, preserved, purified from any taint of original sin. But we don't believe that that's how original sin functions, like a taint per se. Um, uh, we, we, would, we believe that the, there's no guilt that's passed on. It's the effects of Adam's sin that are passed on not the guilt of Adam's sin. That's so cool. that's why we believe Mary did die, because she did. Uh, the, the, the church historically has had what's called the Feast of Dormition. And this is a feast about Mary's passing away, right? She passed away. So uh, that that's the case because she did, uh, she was a son of Adam, right? She did participate in the effects of Adam's fall. This, uh, and so therefore she did, uh, she didn't necessarily sin on her own, but she did receive a fallen human nature. So she died. That's why she died. That's why there's the Feast of the Dormition. Uh, Roman Catholicism went in a different direction where they said, no, she was immaculately conceived, and there is the bodily assumption of Mary. So it would be improper for her to die because she wasn't under original sin. She was cleansed from it. So that's a big difference between Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism is we don't have the same high level of Mary, and as you can imagine, this leads them to take it even further and posit, oh, well, actually Mary was like a co-redeemer with Christ, and uh, I mean, who knows where it's going to go in the next, you know, century, but it'll probably turn into some kind of goddess thing, I don't know. But they, one, they have... one, <laughs> one point I would like to stress, though, um, that, that took me a long time to understand about orthodoxy, which is that we have to be careful... Uh, jumping to the conclusion of similarities so like are there trinities in other world religions yes but it's kind of like you know you have a business i don't know doing you you mentioned like it and stuff uh let's say your it business is called um uh, shamanic it practices right and then you've got like a i don't know some cool trippy logo right and then i'm i'm like um okay uh i'm gonna start the shaman's IT business, yeah, and yeah. I have your same logo, but I just tilted a little, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, five years from now, people might look back and say, oh, look at these dudes, look, they're right. Dude, they're working together, it's the same thing. Well, no, I just kind of like ripped you off, right? Yeah, yeah. So in the same way, just because there's like similarities, we can't jump to the assumption. I'm not saying you're doing this, I'm just saying that. No, sure. That, like when I was studying a lot of Neoplatonism and, and Hellenic, Hellenic <laughs> philosophy, and I did a lot of Aristotle in grad school and stuff, Plato. I had a long time trying to figure out the real difference between what orthodoxy was saying about the Trinity and like Plotinus's Trinity or like the Stoic 
uh, doctrine of the Logos and Marcus Aurelius versus John 1 Logos. But it is distinct, and it, it is that's why it gets really precise, is that they're trying to really show that we're not saying the same thing as Plato or Plotinus. There might be a little overlap. There might be similar terms, but the terms are given new, new usage. So I would just be careful about... Um, thinking that, well, you know, that, that kind of like zeitgeist logic, like zeitgeist makes this argument that, oh, well, there's a deity who has a son, and therefore all the religions that have this imagery of deity and son all are Egyptian or something like that. Yeah. But that's not that's not really accurate. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't think so. It's more nuanced than that. Sure. What was the, um, the influence like uh, at the time of, because um, I, I don't want to get super duper philosophical for the audience's sake you know and also maybe even for my own but i think it would be safe to at least get get you know knee deep into the conversation of like what was the the, the impact or the influence of some of like the the neoplatonists and the greek philosophers and stuff around the time of christ on christianity because you mentioned like we have these words like the noose which I read when I read the uh, the Corpus Hermeticum, which is just a fucking really difficult book to read, uh, you know, if you're if you're not a super super smart person. Um, but the just the, the concept of the word noose, n o u s, used in that book, you know, uh, it's it was hard enough for me. I had to read the whole book countless times. My my girlfriend and I at the time, she would like read a paragraph. We'd be cooking food, and she'd read a paragraph in the kitchen. And we would just analyze it, and then we'd read it again, and then I'd read a paragraph, and we would just—and that's how we had to get through that whole book because it's so deep and dense and weird. But my point is, there was the word "noose," which is like a a, a, a central word in that book, and uh, it's cool to have you as a as a a, a real true um, you know student of the history of philosophy, someone who really knows this shit, because I am very much not that guy. Um, it's hard enough just to figure out what that word even meant, but now you're telling me that not only is that version of it hard to understand, but there are other versions of that word that are so similar but still nuanced in their differences. You know what I mean? It, it's just hard to pick through all that. So maybe you could help us. Like, what, let me make it real clear. So yeah. um, one of the big differences between uh, like Greek philosophy, whether it's Plato, Aristotle, or Plotinus, or any of these guys. And what Orthodox Christianity posits is that the divine that we're speaking of is personal. In Greek Hellenic philosophy, you don't really have this concept of person. Um, the closest thing is, is something like an agent or a mind. So Aristotle thinks that, that God and his, his worldview is like this thought form that just thinks itself in like a circle, right? It's thought thinking itself at all times. And Aristotle thinks that movement of pure thought thinking itself is really the only and best way to describe God. And so he calls God basically uh, pure, active, energetic noose. Um, and there he means mind or intellect. And that makes sense because that's kind of how Greeks viewed the world. Like even Plato thinks that like, you know, reasoning as a faculty, that's like the highest possible thing because that's more like God who's just like this pure thought thing, thought form. So... Um, Plato's very similar. He thinks of the one, the monad, as this kind of beyond being perfect uh, one that has no distinctions, no direct relations to this world. Uh, and since the one has no direct relation to this world, there's kind of a need for an intermediary. And so the one gives birth to uh, noose or mind or intellect. Okay. Plotinus really goes further with this and says that this world is kind of a refracted reflection of 
the 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 mind uh, of the one, which is somehow a distinct thing. So there's the one, and then the mind of the one thinks about the one, and then it like refracts into this world. Okay, who says that? This is Plotinus. Plotinus, because I actually really like that view. Well, we we don't believe that. <laughs> I know but, you're about to uh, tell me why it's a dumb idea, and that's fine. But I, I like the I, well, I like the idea. I vibe with that. But I, I I like what you're saying. Well, that's so so that's all Platonic type of stuff, right? And and I'm just trying to say that in in neither of those systems, uh, Plato, Plotinus, Aristotle, you don't have any idea of this being a kind of a personal type of God that you could have a relationship with, like the way you and I are interacting as persons. Right. We always the Orthodox Church fathers make the analogy to I'm a person, you're a person, we share a common nature. That's kind of like the Trinity, right? Sure. Two persons, one nature, or three persons, uh, a common nature, even though the Trinity isn't distinct beings. But anyway, long story short is that the, the easiest way to see the distinction between what Christianity says and what the Greeks say is that the, the abstract deity that they're talking about is really a deity that you can't know right. or have any interaction with. And the Christian conception is a personal deity. Okay. Hence Christ becoming man. Okay. I, lo I love that. that. That's such a, to me, such a simple way to differentiate between the two. Because I know what you mean. I mean, I, I have read enough enough Greek philosophy to, to know what you're saying. Like, yeah, they do have a pretty, um, it's like, a pretty think impersonal. about it like uh, having a, like in Platonism, it's more like having a relationship with numbers. Right. Like Pythagoreanism. Right. And you, it's yes. like, you know, you don't have a relationship with the number seven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mentioned to you before. So my, my friend Robert Grant, who's a mathematician and right. a sacred geometrist and all this stuff, you know, um, Robert has sort of, you know, he's that's sort of kind of how he interacts right. with, with with God in, in a way. And this is a guy who sees reality very different than we do in many different well, ways. We would agree that like numbers, geometries, that all of that formal structure that we see kind of underlying the fabric of reality, yeah. we would say that is a reflection of the divine mind, but we would just kind of flip it around and say, it's a reflection of the divine mind because God is personal, right? right? Just like I can draw out the architect blueprints of a, of a world, you know, World Warcraft world or something like that, and I program it into the computer, you know, you see the fabric and structure in your simulation because it came from an agent a personal agent right yeah. and then that 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 those algorithms are reflecting you know what's in here with an intentional purpose and what you don't get in the greek view is that 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 you could have this like intentional kind of um personal yeah relationship i say this a lot on on the podcast on instagram and everywhere is it like the to me the reason why God matters, so why the conversation about God matters so much, aside from the obvious, is that like your relationship with God sets the tone for how you how you relate with the rest of the world, how you relate with yourself, how you relate with everybody else. And I do think that there's a meaningful difference between viewing God as this perfect, um, this perfect architectural mathematician that just set this matrix in order versus, yes, it is all that. But it's also a thing you can have a personal mind-heart relationship with and embody and try to, you know, walk this path of, you know, this human path of the embodiment of that, that divinity. I think, I, think that, I think that a person who believes one versus the other there, right, believes in a very personal God versus an imperfect or an impersonal mathematician or a computer program or whatever, like, those people are going to live very different kinds of lives. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to they're gonna walk very different kinds of paths. I think that's fascinating. So... 
when this and this is God, this is I'm, I'm loving this, by the way, I'm eating this up in the audience. I, I know everyone listening to this is eating this up. because This is fascinating stuff. So when did what was, was Platonism? Surely not. When was the birth of this sort of other view of God that we're talking about going back into the Greeks and that sort of thing? Because we have like a lot of polytheism and stuff. What's commonly mm-hmm. referred to as polytheism that came down from Egypt and came down from the Greeks. And you obviously have monotheism that more or less started with Akhenaten uh, or Moses or however you want to look at it in 17th, 18th dynasty of Egypt. But when did like the this Greek philosophical for sort of view of God, which uh, was swimming around at the time of Christ, when did that happen? Where did that come from? Was that Plato? No, it would be the pre-Socratics. So basically, uh, after Homer, you get guys who are known as the pre-Socratics, like Heraclitus, Parmenides, Athenagoras. They start asking, they're, they're called the Ionians, they start asking kind of more abstracted questions. So they, they make an important move um, in the history of philosophy away from the mythological kind of storytelling of Homer, right? Uh, Iliad Odyssey yeah. is telling you stories in, in, in beginning, middle, end, and the gods are doing this and that. Um, and then this is like a step away from that, a demythologizing where they begin to ask more abstract questions like what's, what is reality itself? Uh, what are all things made of? Mm-hmm. What is everything, right? You get all these different philosophers, the atomists, Democritus, different people speculate as to what oh everything's fire everything's flux everything's permanence everything's water right they come up with all these different uh, ideas but in that sense that's a more uh, the, uh, uh, in, in western philosophy an abstracted move although you could argue and some people do that if you read uh, plato's timaeus he says that his his pythagorean doctrines that he got are from egypt if that's true then there were people in Egypt and perhaps even in the Vedas before that already asking the abstract level questions because the Vedas would have phases, the, the, the Hindu philosophers would have these um, phases where they would argue the primacy of one versus many, many at an abstract level. So it's not technically the Greeks that were first to do this, but at the time of Christ, it's Greek philosophy that prior to him, prior to uh, Plato and Aristotle uh, began to ask those abstract questions. Awesome. Okay, so I'm, that's where we're going to get science, right? Science is going to come out of this more abstract line of questioning. Yeah. So, so that that brings me to something I did want to get into then, and I think we're going to Ouroboros this thing back into where we're leaving off right now. Is what what do you see being the impact of things or the influence of things like the Vedas on Christian theology? Um, we have things like the Roman Forum, for instance, at the time of Christ, where you could go, you can go kick it at the Roman Forum, and you could go to temples of of just about every kind from all over the world, and you know, talk to the priests, talk to the worshippers, and and get a whole. It's like it was like uh, the Instagram of 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 Jesus's day, where you had access to all this different um, mm-hmm. spiritual information in, in a place, and there were certainly would have been. Uh, yogis there and Hindus and and people Romans and Egyptians and Greeks and all these people kind of all doing the thing. What where do you feel like Buddhism and and Hinduism did did they ever cross paths with Christianity in the early days or with the Neoplatonists in those days at the in this melting pot of culture and theology? What what did that look like? 
That's a great question. I don't think any of us really know. It's mm. really a lot of speculation and guesswork because when you get into, and I'm no expert in ancient texts or anything like that. I've, I've read a lot, but I'm just, it's not, my field is mainly, you know, philosophy, but um, from what I do know uh, in terms of biblical texts and their history and that kind of stuff, um, a lot of it is guesswork and kind of patching together the best guesses that we have. So a lot of people will play it up though. Like they Sounds really like know. my whole life. Well, they'll play it up like they know what was going on, you know, 2000 BC. I, I, I don't really think we know beyond kind of faint images. So uh, it's very possible, and many ancient writers speculated that other traditions could have had access to Isaiah, like maybe Plato read Isaiah. So there could be that cross-pollination um, that even ancient writers speculated about, but nobody really knows for sure. So as as to the history of Buddhism, who knows? I don't know for sure. Um, some people have written on similarities between Buddhism and Orthodox Christianity. There's a famous book, uh, Dialogue Between Barlium and Josephat, that some people try to link to like a cross-pollination with Orthodoxy and Buddhism. That's a theory. I'm not saying that that's necessarily true. I haven't looked that much into it, but um, I really don't think Orthodox theology, for example, is that hard to figure out. We kind of know um, from, say, the Cappadocians, where they're drawing from certain philosophical ideas here and there. Not a lot, but here and there. They're drawing from certain um, grammarians, uh, Greek guys who wrote grammar, grammar texts. So they, they'll draw from some of those sources, a little bit of Aristotle, a little bit of Plato, um, but not really anything that we could trace to Far Eastern religions like Hinduism or anything like that. Yeah, what do you, so I, I, I think probably from your view, you've already explained this uh, to my dumb ass several times, but <laughs> just because I need things spelled out sometimes. What, um, when, you, when you guys talk about salvation, so like when I was a, a Protestant Christian, um, uh, sort of, you know, navigating through different, uh, the waters of different churches and different denominations and all that stuff, you know, I, I saw the different, the theological differences, you know, like, um, in salvation doctrine, particularly, you know, mm. some some Protestant religions say like, so listen, you have to uh, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that He died and uh, was resurrected and and accept Him as your Lord and Savior and you'll be forgiven and ask for forgiveness, all, you know, more or less that that thing. And once you do that, you're saved, right? Some people would say yes, but if you don't get baptized in water then you're still not saved, right? So everybody's kind of got their little thing. And some people say, yes, that's all true, but then if you really do some bad, bad stuff later, then you're not saved anymore. And some say, well, that's not true. You're, you're what, what do they call it, perpetual salvation or, or something like Once that? Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. And some people say, no, that's not true. Um, what, so how does the orthodoxy, how do you guys handle salvation um, I know you've mentioned it like with the theosis thing and stuff. I just, I'm, again, I'm slow and I'm simple, so help me, help me out. Right, so yeah, there's like a, you could look at it like a threefold sense. Baptism is the beginning of salvation. Um, typically people become catechumens first, which it's very different in orthodoxy from like a Protestant church or even a Roman Catholic church. Like I think in Catholicism, it's a few months and you're in the church. Protestant church, you can join that day. <laughs> I mean, for orthodoxy, it's usually a, one to three year period where you learn the theology, the the kind of a, you go through what you could call a novice period. Um, and then the, there's the initiation rite, um, oftentimes baptism, but depending on case by case basis as to how you're received. 
Uh, and then for us, it's a process, right? So you, you've got a lifelong process of um, basically repenting, purging oneself, and hopefully moving closer and closer to, you know, to God, uh, with the final goal being salvation, properly speaking, being the resurrection. I mean, we want, we're all trying to attain to the resurrection. So yeah. that's, where we're, that's where we're moving. So the resurrection meaning um, the bodily, like the whole man, bodily resurrection. So after death, we we're resurrected bodily. Well, there's a period after death we we believe in. That's um, there's a book called If you like comparative religion, uh, you will find similarities between. Uh, I, I just picked this up today, by the way. This, which is ironic, because I did an analysis of uh, Jacob's Ladder, which is. Uh, I think probably loosely based on this, which is Tim Leary's book where he talks about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, like being oh, similar wow. to the LSD trip. Okay. So the only reason I bring that up is that there's kind of a rough analog in orthodoxy. I'm not trying to equate the two, but uh, actually a famous orthodox theologian, Father Sefram Rose, wrote this book, The Soul After Death. Yeah. And actually he makes the parallels to the book of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So we, we actually do have a after death kind of journey of the soul and then that is temporary in terms in the sense of like you're then you either go to heaven or you don't you are in hades and then you have the resurrection of the body at the end of time so you guys you guys actually are you telling am i understanding this right you actually within your doctrine have uh understood a a post-death journey roadmap like the Tibetan or the Egyptian Book of the Dead? Yeah, he makes the analogy to the Book of the Dead in this. Dude, that is so cool. Because, yeah, I've, I've, I'm, uh, I've read the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the Tibetan Book of the Dead about 10,000 times. And I've, I didn't know Tim Leary wrote a book on it, but I've talked about the psychedelic experience being an unbelievable analog for the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And I'm convinced... Just within my my understanding, my belief of the way that the soul journey works is that yeah, we uh, we die and we go through that um, that journey. You know, if you look at like all of these old mythologies and stuff, they all have this story of the boatman and and you know this this afterlife passage down the river Styx, yeah. or it's down the Milky Way, or it's you know, the the Native Americans here uh, in the U.S. All these different cultures have all these 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 incredible stories about what happens after death. And when you study them all next to each other, they're just remarkably similar. And, well, this uh, is why, yeah, I mean, in the liturgy we have prayers for the dead because we do think that prayers do aid and help those who have passed on. Okay, so so the within this, so the physical, and I'm sorry again, so the, the physical resurrection, we're talking about, uh, th there's going to be a physical resurrection of this body that we're in now? At the end of time, yeah. Oh, at the end of time. Okay, gotcha. Understood. So baptism is the first thing uh, of salvation. You get that done after you become a member of the church, which takes a time of um, ordination. Well, that's your entrance way into the church. Yeah, I um, I dated a girl one time who was a Catholic, and uh, you know not the right kind of Catholic, <laughs> the other kind. And uh, she she like wanted me to join the church, and like she took me to these things. Like I had to go to classes, and they would yeah RCIA classes. Yeah, those those things. Um, which I thought was interesting. And, and so you do that for enough, you become a member, and then you can get baptized, right? And then, and then you have just the whole, the whole lifestyle of living a godly life, and then you have the, the bodily resurrection at the end. So that's sort of a, the triune salvation 
thing there. Yeah, and you, and you want to, you know, I mean, our our life is then lived through the liturgical cycle. So basically, you have this calendar where you're you're living out the life of Christ every year. So that's what the liturgy is. So hence the feast of Pentecost, right? Uh, you know, all that stuff. So you're sort of symbolically walking the Jesus shoes over the course of the year. Oh, that is so cool. Um, I'm big into that kind of stuff. You know, all that, that, that ritual symbolic stuff. I think it's powerful. There's a documentary I would recommend for you that goes into that. Um, actually there's two, I'll, I'll send you them both, but one is called, uh, the icon, a seven part documentary. That's really good. That explains all the kind of the symbolism of the iconography. And then the other documentary is called fountain of immortality. And it's talking about the symbology within the rite itself and what each of these things means. So one's about icons and the other one's about kind of the symbolic. And by the way, the church building itself is symbolic too. Which I, I think is, is incredible. And a lot of people don't think about this stuff. And I, I just, I just saw a video the other day. It's, it's interesting. We're having this conversation. Um, in ancient Egypt, uh, there a lot of people are familiar with, uh, well, maybe familiar with uh, with an Egyptologist named uh, uh, Schwaller de Luvitz. Yeah, I have his stuff. Yeah, so he uh, he and then of course the late great John Anthony West have talked about how uh, or not talked about but have demonstrated and shown how these temples within ancient Egypt are um, they're heaven on earth. They're, they're heaven on earth. They're, yeah, they're, they're, they're um, structural uh, expressions of the human body, of, of the Egyptian yeah. um, uh, perspective of, of reality or of heaven or whatever you want to call it. And then there was this whole symbolic procession that the pharaohs used to do mm-hmm. where they would move through the city in this sort of parade, like a Mardi Gras parade. And they would they would move through different parts of the city with on a specific path that was to represent the the soul's journey through the duat through the afterlife, mm-hmm. uh, and they built their entire city layout based on their roadmap of the afterlife. I mean, these are people who, as above, so below. I mean, their 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 expression of the hermetic principles of correspondence and things like that were just incredible. They really walked the walk. And it's it's beautiful to me to hear that, that you guys in the orthodoxy uh, venerate those kinds of things and recognize the symbolism. Yeah, if you want a little book on that, uh, there's one by a uh, guy who's a patriarch in the 8th century. He's a patriarch of Constantinople in the 8th century. It's called uh, On the Divine Liturgy. And he just goes through the symbolism of the whole liturgy. And he wrote that in the... Uh, 700s yeah i'm all over it, man Take it's only out. like 90 pages it's worth reading who was that saint what his name is saint germanus of constantinople what a cool name okay i got it yeah i mean the um you know the the temples that we worship in we were kind of talking earlier about you know you have temples and you've got priests and you've got smells and sounds and and taste and all this stuff it's all um, to immerse yourself in Correct. an environment of worship and veneration is uh, is a very different experience than having someone talk at you from the front of a building, or uh, you know, or, or whatever. Especially, you know, do, do you guys speak English in your church, or do you still speak Latin? No, no. So the Orthodox Church never had Latin because Latin was the Western Empire's language. 
so the Orthodox Church has always had vernacular services based on wherever the church was. Uh, now, I most of the time attend a Russian Orthodox Church, so a lot of the liturgy where I go is Slavonic, Church Slavonic, because the people are largely Russian, but a lot of it's also English because we have a dual population. So, Do you speak Russian? No, I do not. Yeah, catch up. Everybody else at church is... But, I mean, I, I have this service book in English, so... Yeah. I'm not so, lost. when lost. did they start doing Latin? Because, you know, I... I uh, some, for whoever doesn't know. So, Latin was like the, the local language of Rome. That's that's what it was. Right, it was the vulgar, right? Hence, when Jerome translated it into the Vulgate, it's based on what was the common language. So, ironically, Latin used to be the vulgar language, the common language, and then over time, it just sort of, you know, passed out of existence. But... Um, I mean, there's still Roman Catholic churches that do Latin masses still today. But yeah. When did so? When did they start doing that though? Because you well, said the Orthodox Latin. Church did, never did it in Latin, but well, because they're in the East, so Latin is Western. Right. Right. So okay. The Western Empire would do it in the vernacular even in the in the first few centuries. So Jerome is in the 400s, right? So okay, gotcha. Late 300s, early 400s, the predominant language begins to be Latin. Jerome translates the Bible in from different texts into Latin and it's known as the Vulgate. That was the official Roman Catholic bubble for centuries. Um, and then that's what's used everywhere in the West for centuries. But I'm saying in the East, it was Greek because they still spoke Greek and Byzantium. But when the church, for, for example, sent out missionaries, they would translate it into the language of the people. And so Orthodoxy is always done vernacular worship so what do you think about the fact that like the roman catholic church the western guys like they they used to kill people if you got caught with a bible written in your own language well it's more nuanced than that i'm not defending the roman catholic practice but it's more nuanced than that because it wasn't just possessing like a vernacular translation um at the time of the reformate or well prior to the reformation um there was a lot of these bad translations that were being put out that were in many ways also subversive Again, I'm not saying that it was good what they did, but it wasn't just, oh, we don't want you possessing a Bible. It was actually that Wycliffe Bible and these, uh, these other Bibles that were going around were uh, faulty translations, and nobody uses them today. So yeah. it's known that they were bad translations. But um, I did a whole talk on this. You might like it. It's just on uh, history, like medieval stuff and the, all the medieval movements. But I based it on a, a big, fat historian uh, book, Malcolm Lambert. Uh, but he covers all those medieval movements really well as a historian. I'd love it. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd totally love it. I I love when uh, when smart people condense big books from my simple mind. That's why I make a living, dude. I, I make a living by just reading the books and then summarizing it for people. Yeah, well, I, I can keep you employed. Just show me where to send my money. I'll I'll keep reading the little books and watching the videos for sure. Now, what is so? A couple of things. So, like, we had uh, okay, beautiful. I'm just going to send you, you can keep going. I'm going to send you those documentaries while I'm thinking of it. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that very much. Um, so w when, when we've got these books, right. And we've got them, um, old Testament, we've got 40 some odd books, which is interesting because the Jews only had the first five. And then we have the new Testament, which is like what 20 or something like that. Well, no, the Jews don't have just five. They have, um, all of the other prophets, and the writings and the Psalms. So the, the Jewish Bible, so to speak, also includes uh, the major and minor prophets, Isaiah, Zechariah, all those guys. 
and David's Psalms. So they had so, the, they had the Torah. The Torah was the first five, right? Right. That's the Law of Moses. So that's the Law of Moses. And then what's the other book called? Well, the the, the Bible, the Tanakh, is all of the Old Testament writings for the Jews. So that's the Psalms and the historical books, Solomon, or, uh, uh, like Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. Right, and right. So you've got David's Psalms, you've got uh, Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes by Solomon, and then you've got the prophets, right? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Habakkuk, all the minor prophets. And yeah. So all of that is the, the Jewish Bible. But at the time of um, the... Uh, time of Christ, there there wasn't a like completely fixed Jewish Bible, so that that's was, why that was what I was getting at. Is what the Orthodox what, what, Bible is bigger than the Protestant or Jewish Bible for the Old Testament? So, hold on, say, so say, say, we, say that again. We have all of these books that are called the Deuterocanon, okay, and there are uh, several books more than what Protestants or Jews would accept for the Old Testament. So the, the Protestants said we need to just follow uh, the Palestinian Jews. Uh, and the Orthodox Church follows what the apostles and church fathers did, which was to use what's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which includes all these other books. So you guys have more Old Testament books than the Protestants I grew up with. Correct. We have basically what Catholics have. Okay, so I didn't even realize the Catholics have more. But they so Protestants have a okay, gotcha. They have so the, reform, the reformers said we got to get rid of these books because we should follow what the Jews of the first, second, third century did. So here's here's what I think is interesting, and it, it is that we don't honestly have any idea what Jesus was reading. Right. We don't have any idea. We have we have, you know, some clue that he was he had influences from all of the because I, 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 mean, I assume he grew up Jewish. And I, w- I would take issue with that. I, I don't well, well, just, well, then let me let me reframe it, maybe. So what I'm saying is not maybe not that we don't have any idea. Um, I've got at my house, I don't know, six or seven hundred books. I don't know how many. Right. And I've read a bunch of them and I haven't read all of them and I'll read more before it's over with. And if I created an entire life's work of of books and lectures and all this stuff, you're certainly going to know that I've read, you know, you're going to have a pretty good idea of what I've read, you know. But no one, um, no one alive, if I spend the rest 90 years of my life writing books and lectures about everything in my worldview, and, and I'm as thorough and complete as I can be over a 90-year career, if I wrote 10 books a year, no one in the world would ever know how many books I really read or what they were or where all of my influences came from. I, that, that's just, I think that's just a fair thing okay. to say. Sure. And so I just, I wonder sometimes, you know, where some of, is it possible that there was anything that mattered to Jesus that didn't make it into the Bible? You know, are there, are there books that, that were, that were kept out? And you, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to lead you anywhere. You know what I'm getting at is, you know, what, who made who made that decision, right? Was it was it that that old argument about the Council of Nicaea? Because I know that you know a lot about that, and I'm, I'm very interested in that. Like, who made the decision on which books go where? Because we have these different so, denominations. So I can yeah, I can give you a, a little quick rundown on this. So Nicaea did not decide like what goes into the okay. Bible. But one thing I'll say is so so for example, if you have an Orthodox Bible, so here's the New Testament, right, which is about that much, yeah. right. And then here is the Old Testament, which is significantly larger, probably 
and two-thirds times the size of the new test. And so we know, and it's, it's not even really disputed by anybody that I'm aware of, any scholars, liberal or conservative, that this is what Jesus had. Right? So he had this in his day. So when he went to his synagogue uh, and when he worshipped locally or when he went up to the temple, this is what they read, this right here. All of this stuff that is the same for the most part in a Protestant Bible or in a Jewish Old Testament, uh, except for some areas and nuanced places, but we'll set that aside for the moment. So we do know what Jesus read and worshipped in terms of what the extant biblical texts were of that time. Um, one thing that we can look to is, as I said, all of these church fathers who wrote right here, all these guys in the red, those are all from 100 to 300. Hey, where can people and, find? Where can I find those? Are, are the, do those books have a certain series name or something? They're just called. They're just called the uh, Post Apostolic Fathers or the Pre Nicene Fathers, and they're all online. You can all go to. You can, you can read all of them at New Advent or CCEL, or there's a, a ton of different websites that have all of those. So when it comes to textual studies, like it's not. It can be very obtuse and difficult and. Uh, um, technical, but a lot of the basics aren't that technical. It's not that difficult to see that, like we can go read Irenaeus, for example. He wrote a 600-page, 700-page book in 180 AD. And for a long time, that was one of the main sources that we knew about Gnostics, was Irenaeus's book Against Heresies, right? So he wrote in 180, and this book is so huge, and he cites so much biblical text that it's one great example from the second century uh, of a, it's a powerful attestation to the veracity of the Old and New Testament. So within, you know, a century of, of the death of the last apostles, uh, 150 or so, 150 years after the death of the apostles, 110, if you want to date John in there, 100, 110. So you've got, uh, you know, 120 or 150, 160 years later, you've got a guy who basically recites gigantic portions of the Bible. So that's just one example amongst many. Tertullian has countless uh, biblical citations as well, that regardless of what one thinks of Irenaeus or Tertullian, they're attestations of history to the veracity of the text. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole bunch of examples like this of these things that people just don't know about or they're ignorant of or... Um, don't take the time to look into, but uh, it's there, there, there's way more attestation to the biblical text than any other ancient text, whether it's Plato, Aristotle, like the oldest texts of Plato are the Middle Ages. AD. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And I, we, have, I, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of texts that attest to the biblical text. Now, what about the, like the Nag guys. What do you think about the Nag Hammadi Library and the Dead Sea Scrolls and their, their veracity? I mean, I think the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, is a good attestation to Isaiah and the Old Testament and the, the uh, Deuterocanon. Uh, and I think Nag Hammadi uh, is a vindication of the things that Irenaeus explains about the Gnostics because the Nag Hammadi is the Gnostic text. So, yeah, they, um, you know, and I don't I don't have all of those things like committed to memory and remember all of that stuff as well as I used to remember Bible verses as a kid, you know. But I've I've skimmed through them. I have them at the house, but I'm I'm such an ADD reader that I if you go in my house I've got uh, you know I've got a library, but then I have a few other bookshelves. But mainly 
you just find stacks of four and five books all over my house on every end table with bookmarks shoved in them. It's just how I how I read. So I don't remember all of everything, but from what I remember, well, like, go ahead. One thing about those Gnostic texts, whether it's Gospel of Thomas or you know whatever, you, I mean, yeah. they're pretty starkly different than the kinds of things that you read uh, in Paul or in the Gospels. Right, so, that was what I was going to ask you about. I mean, it's pretty different. I mean, you've got, you know, mention of the goddess, you've got Sophia principle, the Pistis Sophia. I mean, it's it's not like it was a, a super hard decision for the church fathers and the bishops to decide what books went into the Bible, because yeah. uh, most of the time it was pretty clear. And there was, however, many centuries of debate about what texts go into the Bible to make up the Bible that we have today. Uh, and for the Orthodox Church, that's debated for, you know, all the way up into the 600s. So the the the, and I'm glad you mentioned that too because I I almost forgot about that. But by the way, that shows that they weren't working on the Bible alone principle. So for 680 years, the church existed as a church with liturgical worship, bishops, etc. They didn't have this Bible alone Protestant principle. It was impossible. The Bible alone. What is it? What do you mean by that? So one of the key doctrines of Protestantism is that we follow the Bible alone, right? Okay. The Bible is the final authority. Okay. But I'm saying that there was no finished Bible for 680 years. Gotcha. Okay. So they couldn't have been Protestants. Okay. So it, it, like it, it, at, at Nicaea, what, ha what did happen at Nicaea? All Nicaea did was meet to discuss the, the deity of Christ. I mean, they did talk about uh, accepted biblical texts because there were— um, dubious texts floating around but uh the main force of that of that council you can read it and uh, you can read it in here it's, it's not even that long uh nicaea has like 20 something canons which are just like a paragraph each and then the creed and uh it just says that uh, christ is fully divine as the father so that's that's the essential purpose of nicaea was to do that was to proclaim uh, the deity of Christ and to list what are called canons, which are just kind of rules about how the church should be governed uh, in terms of local practical problems. So like you have like baptism should be done like this or, you know, we need to worship on the Lord's Day Sunday. Uh, don't give the Eucharist to these people. So it's just like that kind of stuff. Gotcha. It's, it's no, not you could read it. You could read Nicaea in like 10 minutes. Mm. So they already had. They already had their canon more or less together by that. There time. was a loose canon, <clears throat> but it wasn't fixed yet because there's still some books that will be debated for the next several centuries. Gotcha. And then 680-ish years later, you have a reassembly of the canon. Is that what you? Is that what I understood? No, no, no. I mean, there are existing canons that are all around the empire, but everybody has essentially the same faith because Nicaea produces a creed. It's called the Nicene Creed, and that's 325. But there are, uh, in the first millennium, there are eight different big councils. They're called ecumenical councils. And so each one of these meets after the pattern of Nicaea. Okay. So Nicaea is just the first one, and all they do is, is lay out kind of the deity of Christ. But they don't, they're not really intent on fixing the, the, what's called the canon of Scripture or the, the books that make up the Bible. Gotcha. That gotcha. comes many, many uh, councils later. Understood. Okay. All right. I've got uh, I've got essentially two more questions for you, man. Because I, I and I could do this all day. You're you're just such a wealth of knowledge, and I'm having so much fun with this. I appreciate you lending your well, brain. 
Uh, I'm honored, or I'm honored that you would ask me. So. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, and and the, the the thing for me, and I told you this earlier, is you know we talk a lot about Eastern mysticism, uh, Native American mysticism, you know, Aboriginal um, spirituality, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, and mythology and Jungian psychology and just you name it all kinds of woo-woo shit that you know anything I've explored that's that's helped me in some way to enrich my life and to find truth in the ways that I have sacred geometry alchemy astrology but you sort of just in, in things that have led up to the to this meeting in my life it's um uh, you've been the first person that I've sort of opened my doors to 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 come in here and, and talk about Christianity and it was uh, it's it's the case that you've made for uh, I feel like for for the Eastern Orthodox Christianity has been um, I find I find it to be really enriching I find it to be a, a you know a beautiful thing and to be um, coming from an authentic place and so I always want this this show to be a place where you know people who are coming from a place of spiritual confusion or they're they're lost they don't know what they're looking for. You know, not everybody's going to vibe with Buddhism. Not everybody's going to vibe with Hinduism. Not everybody is, a, you know, an ADD weirdo like me that wants to build their own spiritual philosophy for truth out of everything that they that they find. And uh, a lot of people, man, they they really like they really like their their Christianity and they love Jesus and they they really they like being in that space. I just think that we we need to give people a better option than what a lot of people have, <laughs> you know, and. uh I think Western Christianity, especially like I told you, is an atheism factory. <laughs> so yeah, I love that you said that. Western Christianity and Protestantism is an atheism factory. It really does. I mean, you've got to abandon a lot of like moral and ethical and intellectual values to to really get on board with it. Yeah, you know, and you also miss out on a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the mystical stuff and a lot of the you know the things that are really that are really beautiful to me. So, um, another book I'd recommend to you, which I think shows that for orthodoxy, there's not a a divide between like reasoning and intellect and logic and the mystical. Um, it's one of the best, uh, theologians of, of our church in the 20th century. His name is Vladimir Lossky. And he wrote this book called the mystical theology of the Eastern church. I highly recommend that book. It'll, if if you're brand new to the stuff, it'll be a little bit of a challenge. But if you get through it, it is worth it. And it's not that long; it's only about 300 pages. But it's 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 one of our best uh, books for the 20th century. All right, I got it. I'm going to read it for sure. All right, what is truth? Ultimately, I would say truth is a person. Uh, and it is the Logos himself, uh, Christ, and all of the meanings of things in this world, uh, what we call the Logi, are summed up in him. Beautiful. And what do you feel like the role of, of religion and spirituality and God should be in the life of humans and the life of the world? I believe the Orthodox Church is the uh, hospital of the soul of man. Uh, it is a um, way to be healed from what we are born into, uh, and it is the path to uh, deification. That's what it should be. The path to deification. That's the, the path by which we become sort of an embodiment of, of Christ. Is that We become divine, literally. Yeah. 
That's awesome. That's the goal. That should be the goal, right? This is uh, this is the ascension that we're talking about here. Exactly. Like yes. the, the I think orthodoxy has the true theurgy, if you want to put it in that way. Okay. So if you know about theurgy in terms of like Iamblichus and the early uh, Platonists, they, they talked about engaging in rituals that would make them divine, right? That was what they thought they were doing. I don't think that they achieved it, but I think orthodoxy has the true theurgy, so to speak. And if you watch that uh, um, documentary I sent you, Fountain of Immortality, that's that's kind of what I'm getting at. That's awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to watch it, and I'll link it in the uh, the description to uh, to this to this episode too. Um, and so, in the deification process, right? This 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 object this objective we have to to become deities in ourselves. Is it mm-hmm. safe to say that that uh, the Eastern Orthodoxy and that yourself, you view Christ as the as the, the the perfected sort of icon that we can view and emulate and embody in, in that process? Is that where that is that where Christ fits into your belief? That's one element, but we have to be careful that we're not just saying that like we're trying to emulate Him. We actually think that we need Him to empower us and give us a real ontological participation in his uncreated grace that makes us divine so we don't become new persons in the trinity but we become sons of god by grace whereas he is a son of god by nature but he through his work his actions shows us how to become uh what peter calls a partaker in the divine nature that's awesome man that's awesome i'm gonna leave you on that one it's what a it's a good note to leave on the power of the power of god the power of divinity and uh, the beauty of truth, that we can all seek it, that we could all seek to to ascend like Christ did, and and to uh, to deify ourselves and, yes, and uh, to exactly. be a, to be a light in the world for everybody. And so, um, I know we kind of come from different faiths, but I hope you don't mind me sending you off and the audience off with a blessing. Um, but I would just say that you know, may the light be upon you, may peace be within you, and may you be a sun on the paths of all men. And so, everybody, thank you for joining. Uh, this has been a great conversation with Jay Dyer. I'm excited to uh, to share this with you guys. Jay, God bless you, man. We'll be talking to you soon. Thanks, okay, man. I appreciate Thanks for your that. Time. God bless you as well. Yep. Take care. Have a good day.